This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashio Christi. This is the show where we help you learn how to live a happy life. Talk about the ideas, the philosophy that leads to a fulfilled and abundant life. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we have a lot of things to talk about, Kirk. We had a recorded show last week, so the stack of stuff is really high. We're going to be talking about homosexual marriage. We'll be talking about the reliability of Scripture today. Also, be sure and check us out on the web at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. We've got a great new Facebook page, thanks to Kirk. You can also find us on iTunes if you want to listen to podcasts. Also check out the website, ratiochristi.org. All right, Kirk, we have a quote of the week. This is once again from C.S. Lewis. It says, If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. But of course, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, They may mean the state into which the sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of. If they mean that, I think they are wrong. I think it is everything to be ashamed of. There is nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. (laughs) Is that great? Yep, I've heard that before. That's a good quote. (laughs) Yep, C.S. Lewis strikes again. (laughs) Well, there's several news items. One is about a new movie that's out. I am hoping to see it. I haven't seen it, but it was in the theaters on Friday, and it's called For the Greater Glory. This is an amazing story. Apparently, it is a true story. It's based on actual facts that happened in Mexico between 1926 and 1929. Why we don't hear about it is amazing to me. But it's about what happened when the secular socialist government under President Cales started seizing church property, started shutting down religious schools, kicking out priests, and actually required people to renounce Christ or face execution. So this is an amazing time period in Mexico's history. Apparently, a lot of people died somewhere. The, the things I saw said between 60 and 90,000 people died. One massacre by the state trying to suppress Christianity killed 5,500 people. So the Christians, mostly Catholics, obviously, in Mexico, rebelled. It was called the Cristeros Rebellion, and they fought back. 
apparently they were successful in keeping the, the government from suppressing religion, but the government stayed in power, and so they essentially removed the information from the history books. So how that affected American history, I don't know, but I sure didn't learn about this. Of course, I was overseas for a lot of my childhood education. You were overseas in the 1920s? Uh, yeah, I was overseas. Yeah, that's right. I was really, I'm really old. <laughs> <laughs> but you were, you went through elementary school here in the States and went through history lessons. And I don't think you'd heard about this either, had you? Well, I don't know if I'm a fair subject or not, because I didn't pay much attention in history class when <laughs> I was a kid. Although I'm very interested in history now as an adult. There so, you go. But well, no, I don't, I, I don't, I don't remember about ever. Australian history, but that doesn't help here much. Well, then you know who Crocodile Dundee is. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite the historical figure. <laughs> yes. No, I don't remember hearing this, this uh, story about this uh, rebellion against Christianity in Mexico at all. Yeah, well, it was a rebellion against the state. It was a suppression of Christianity. It was a secular, anti-religious move. And, uh, you know, the way things are headed with the Obama administration, it couldn't be more appropriately timed because it just shows how quickly things can deteriorate when you have a secular government. Yeah, a lot of people today are afraid that the same thing could happen here. Yeah, especially since there's been a lot of voiced oppression of religious rights with the health care issues that have come up. So uh, I think this will be good for people to go see and, and just see how bad things can go real fast. Well, the other thing I wanted to bring up is I had an opportunity to do a little research. I got interested in the question, Kirk, believe it or not. Well, you would believe it because I've got children who are of marriageable age, and I have one son who is engaged to, to marry, and I got interested in the idea of what's the best age to get married. Hmm. And, you know, if you look at studies, you can find anything these days. They study everything. You can find out what percentage of the time you ought to be eating chicken if you want to live your, the longest, you know. <laughs> uh, anything like that. I mean, very little details, how much exercise, you know, how much time you're sedentary. And it's all related to your health and happiness, and but very little about the age to marry. To marry now, there's a lot on the benefits of marriage. Lots on the health benefits, on the psychological benefits. Um, this is one of the things that leads to happiness that we talk about on this show. But there was very little about the best age to marry. But I did find a couple of in-depth articles that had done research on this issue. And so, just to make things go a little faster, the answer is dun da da da, between twenty and twenty-five. Oop, that so, lets me out. Yeah, I wasn't married yeah. till I was thirty-four. Oh yeah, well apparently now this is you know I think most people have heard that if you marry too young, your marriage is less likely to last. So, uh, but apparently it also happens if you marry too late. So the later you marry, you also are less likely. So you are bucking the trend, my friend. Oh, actually, I just remembered. It's not 34. It was uh, 36 I got married. Wow. Wow. So I'm really out of the loop. And you've been married for about 60 years now? Yeah, close. <laughs> <laughs> or just seems like 60 years. No, nah, it doesn't seem like that long. 
seems like 60 minutes. Right? My wife is listening to the show. I have to be careful. Yeah, that's right. So, so what you do is you say, if you've been married 10 years, you say, well, I've been married for 10 years, but it only seems like 10 minutes underwater. And the thing that you don't say is, I've been married for 20, uh, 23 years, and it's been the best 15 years of my life. <laughs> there you go. All right, another item that came across. This was a study. This was published June 1st, so two days ago, by Gallup. And Gallup's been doing a regular study. They do this basically almost every year now, where they ask the question, which of the following statements comes closest to your views on the origin and development of human beings? So the possible answers are, one, human beings have developed over millions of years from less advanced forms of life, but God guided the process. So there's your theistic evolutionary hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Or number two, human beings have developed over millions of years from less advanced forms of life, but God had no part in the process. And number three, God created human beings pretty much in their present form at one time within the last 10,000 years or so. So the results are 46% said God created humans in their present form. 32% said humans evolved with God guiding, and only 15% said humans evolved, but God had no part in the process. Really? And this has stayed stable since the 1980s. They started this in 1982. Wow. So so they question about 1,000 people, and uh, that's enough to be consistent. And the numbers have stayed consistent except for the numbers of people who say God evolved but God had no part in the process. That has been increasing slightly. It jumped up. Guess when you think it might have jumped up? The last few years? No, actually since 9-11. Oh, really? Yeah, it was stable at around 10% prior to 9-11 from 1982 until 2001, and then it jumped up, and it's it's reached about 15% now. So that's increased by 50%. Now, the other situations have remained stable. So this is people who were previously answered answering don't know or no opinion or not applicable. And those people are more willing now to say that God had no part in the process. Hmm. Now, one of the interesting things people might think is, wow, that's a lot of uh, young earth creationists because it talks about the 10,000 years or so. Um, but that would actually also be the beliefs of old earth creationists who believe the earth is old, but that human beings were created fairly recently. So just so people are clear about that, that's not 46% of the people are not young earth creationists. And what's the percentage of people that think that we haven't evolved at all, that we're actually we're going backwards? <laughs> yeah, there you go, decaying. <laughs> <laughs> we're devolving. Like a lot of the genetic information. I mean, that's just entropy, right? Yeah, I could see after 9-11 people thinking, we're getting worse. We're not getting better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, there was another study. This I came across kind of tangentially. It's an old study, uh, well, from 2007, so it's not entirely old, but it does deal on a topic that we've talked about in the past quite a bit, about kids going to college. Are they losing their faith because they go to college? Now, in the past, we have said, no, actually, they're doubting much earlier than that. They take the opportunity 
of going to college to stop going to church. Some of them will come back after college, after they get married and things. Uh, but most of the doubting actually goes on in junior high and high school. So this study actually confirmed that. This was a study by sociologists at the University of Texas in Austin, and their published article was called Losing My Religion, The Social Sources of Religious Decline in Early Adulthood. And it was June 2007, published in the Journal of Social Forces. So what they said, I've got a couple paragraphs of what they said here. Emerging adults who, isn't that a great term? I love that, emerging adults, mm -hmm. who do not attend college are most prone to curb all three types of religious decline. Uh, decline in church attendance, decline in importance of religion, or disaffiliation with religion in early adulthood. Simply put, higher education is not the enemy of religiosity that so many have made it out to be. Hmm. And of course, that actually came from early studies of this. It's been a while since people have said that it was college uh, that was doing it. One of the Ken Ham, a young earth creationist, did a study, and that also showed, Ken Ham's study showed that it's mostly kids who do not go to college that are rejecting Christianity. Uh, their mm -hmm. next statement is, the overwhelming majority, 82% of college students, maintain at least a static level of personal religiosity in early adulthood. Similarly, 86% retain their religious affiliation. For most, it seems, religious belief systems go largely untouched for the duration of their education. And if you look at the raw data, uh, you can see where the original concerns come from because this also reflects that there is a tremendous decline in religious service attendance. So young adults just don't go to church. So uh, the good news is that they're not necessarily disaffiliating from their religious beliefs. So this had things broken down. And, it, and just so you know, it's roughly of all young adults about... 69% of them, so almost 70% of them, uh, have a decline in religious service attendance. And so that's, of course, what everybody was worried about. And that's what a lot of the studies showed. So people were, at first, thought that it might be college doing this, that, you know, because there's so much atheism being foisted on kids in college, uh, as if that's academia, that's educational. But this study shows it had things broken down by uh, family formation. You know, are these people getting married or not? Um, what kind of behavioral variables there are? What their education attainment is? And things like that. So the most important, the thing that is l most likely to keep you from going to church, to say that religion is not important, and to disaffiliate from your religion, you know what the number one thing was? Uh, I wouldn't even guess. Okay. Are you currently cohabitating? Oh, really? Yep. That made, that made you most likely to reject your past religion. Second was, have you ever smoked marijuana? So that, uh, that was number two. And then number three is not attending college. So, and then it, it seems to improve if you, if you go to a two-year college and if you go to a four-year college, it's even better, even less likely to reject uh, your religion. Now, the other important thing to notice is that 
what category of religious affiliation. So they have it down by evangelical Protestant, black Protestant, mainline Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, or other religion. And the um, I'm a little distracted here because I see we got we had a caller, but I guess they hung up. So we'll if you are interested in calling, uh, you can reach us at 609-398-1020. And you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about a study that showed that people or young adults who leave their religion are most likely did not go to college. Um, now, of those groups that I just named, the number one for disaffiliating with their religion is other, other religions. So not Christians, not Protestants, not Catholics, not Jews, but uh, this would be Hindus, Buddhists, Mormons, etc. Uh, so they are most likely to disaffiliate from their religion. And then the things that help you, the things that go along with the least likely are uh, being a black Protestant, uh, also being Catholic. So even though Catholic, you're more likely to, to stop attending services, you're more likely to have a decline in the importance of um, religion, you're less likely to actually disaffiliate. So people will not live as, Christ- as Catholics, but they will, stay, they will still claim they are Catholics. They like um, to keep a foot in the door just in case. Apparently. Yeah, <laughs> apparently that's it. And then as for the other uh, categories that you fall in, if you are currently married, then you are least likely to disaffiliate. If you have never smoked marijuana or uh, if you attend a four-year college, those are the things that are most associated with staying in your religion. That's so. surprising. Yeah, isn't it? The last it one. Well, we had hints of this from uh, other studies, so not not actually so so surprising. Uh, but the main thing is that it's not college; it's kids have already made up their minds by college. It's really junior high and high school where they're beginning to question and doubt, and if they're going to leave, they've already left by then mentally. So the solution is to make sure that your kids get the right answers while they're still young. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Maybe instead of only teaching them Bible stories, you might want to teach them some things about things like the reliability of the Bible in the first place. Right. How do we know that it's even been uh, carried down to us correctly? And that's one of the things we'll talk about today. Teach them something solid to build their faith on so it doesn't uh, disappoint them later on. That's right. Not only what they what to believe, but how to know that it's true. Well, Kirk, uh, you've got an interesting article that you summarized, and I thought, uh, so we might as well jump in before we get into the reliability of Scripture. Let's talk about this issue since President Obama has put it on the front pages of the papers that he now believes that same-sex marriage is moral. Well, he endorses it anyway. He's come out and officially endorsed it. Yep. And that's a big, that's a big thing. I mean, when the president does something like that, that is so unpopular, um, it's a big issue. Well, he's the first sitting president to do that, which is what makes it such a headline. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of inflamed rhetoric going around concerning this subject. So Not we, just rhetoric, too. I mean, people are getting 
you know, threats and their cars blown up. And if you dare oppose homosexual marriage, boy, you really can get in trouble. It's it's a hard subject to have a rational uh, discussion about, unfortunately. Yeah. One of the uh, the problems with this situation of trying to discuss this is that a lot of same-sex marriage advocates uh, like to dismiss uh, people that don't advocate this as bigots. Right. And unfortunately, a, a number of major news organizations and op-ed contributors have also stooped to the same level. One yeah, piece of one piece in the Los Angeles Times, you know, a major newspaper, recently ran with a headline, Obama, gay marriage, and a win for bigotry in North Carolina. Right. Can you believe yeah. that? That's, that's real them. objective yeah, news reporting. they don't reporting. have any arguments on their side, so you got to attack people. But unfortunately, simply calling someone a bigot doesn't make it so. Uh, the way it's used by many same-sex marriage proponents, unfortunately, uh, it simply means failing to fall in line behind the name-caller on issues he considers to be non-negotiable. Right. But uh, unfortunately, name-calling is a poor way to argue a cause because it avoids the serious discussion of the topic, and it seeks to stymie debate with cheap personal attacks. Right. So uh, that's the problem with it. Now, yeah. the article yeah. that I have here... Uh, it's interesting. I've couched this as four same-sex elephants in the room that gay rights proponents constantly ignore. And I would even say that most uh, media outlets like the Los Angeles Times ignore these four elephants in the room also. Right. Yeah. You, you won't hear this talked about in regular uh, news, even though the vast majority of people know these things to be true and uh, understand they are true. But you won't, you won't read about it. Nope, hardly ever. The first one is that homosexuals, think about this, homosexuals are not a race. They, they should not qualify for any kind of special civil rights because their difference is based solely on their emotional attitudes and their sexual behavior, not on any kind of racial ethnicity. Right. Think about that one. And when have you heard that in uh, your local newspaper? Right. No, you don't. You don't. Because if you do, you'll be called a bigot. Uh, that could be one of the reasons. <laughs> Elephant number two, and this is a biggie, and probably most people don't realize this, but no physical cause for homosexual behavior has ever been found. Right. Uh, and this kind of contradicts the convenient excuse that they use that they're born that way. I can get right. I had somebody try to tell me that I should be for gay marriage because of the song by Lady Gaga. Yeah. Born that way. <laughs> that, like, that, uh, okay. Yep. And she's on her Born That Way world tour right now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, here's a couple of examples that I dug up. Uh, a uh, Dr. James McCary, the author of a book called Sexual Myths and Fallacies, says in the book, Neither present-day endocrinological, let me say this right, endocrinological tests nor microscopic or clinical examinations have revealed any physiological differences between the heterosexual and the homosexual individual. Right. There's no difference. Right. Physically, anyway. Uh, another doctor uh, by the name of Charles Soker reads, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, he wrote a book called Homosexuality. And he says in his book, he comes right out and says, homosexuality is not an innate characteristic. Right. Uh, another example, eminent psychiatrist William Byrne reported in the Archives of General Psychiatry that there is no evidence at present 
to substantiate a biologic theory of sexual orientation. Right. Now, right. there are many, many other examples. We could go on for a while if I compiled them, but there's a lot. Uh, and right. even, this is surprising, even a number of homosexual gen geneticists who have studied this issue have been forced to admit that they have not been able to find a gay gene. Now, did right. you know that? <laughs> yep, yep. And, the, and I think, I don't remember if we talked about it on the show, but I know I talked about it to my Sunday school class. There was a study published just recently, uh, a couple months ago, that, and this was by the UCLA uh, Department of Sexual Identity, and uh, they uh, released a study that, and this has been a repeated study. So this, this they were repeating previous work that showed that certainly among lesbians there is no sexual identity whatsoever. So um, lesbians are equally sexually aroused by males or females, despite if they self-identify as. Uh, lesbians. They do not have a sexual identity, a sexual uh, focus. They don't get locked in like males do. Okay. And the locked inness that males get happen to, where males will become pedophiles or males will become homosexuals or males will become necrophiliacs or whatever, uh, they get locked into this developmentally. They're, most of the studies have shown that there's a developmental link. There's a stage that young boys go through where they have to uh, I identify with the father, and that's where they get their sexual identity from. And so if they have a broken home, they have, or an abusive father or distant father, um, they have problems with sexual identity. And of course, that is a big problem today, not the absentee Broken father. homes, absolutely. Yep. This is yep. how it comes back to bite us. Yep. Okay. The third elephant in the room that's never spoken about. The fact that homosexual behavior has been widely considered to be wrong for thousands of years. Medically and psychologically, it's clearly deviant behavior because it flies smack in the face of obvious biological norms. It has also been considered immoral by all the major religions of the world. And that's no little thing. I mean, we're talking about 90 to 95% of the people in the world claim one of the major religions as their belief system. So that's no little thing. Right. Uh, unfortunately, many modern homosexuals insist that most people throughout history are the ones who were wrong about their behavior, and they are right. Yeah. Can you think the arrogance of that? Incredible. But they're never able to give satisfactory reasons to back up that point of view. Like we've right. just been talking about, they can't give any medical or scientific evidence to prove you know, that it's true. They can't identify themselves as a race. They really, you know, if you ask them for proof, um, they can't, they don't have it. Right. So, unfortunately, they often resort to the name calling. They call you a bigot because that's the only resort they have left. Yep. And the fourth elephant in the room, this is talked about sometimes, but I don't think nearly enough in the media. So far, 39 states have constitutional amendments or laws banning same-sex marriage, which, of course, North Carolina is the most recent example. Now, that's 39 out of 50 states. And a couple right. more will be voting on this issue in the fall, and they expect uh, the bans to pass there also. So there could be a couple more added. Right. Uh, every time this issue comes up in a public election, it loses by wide margins. Right. So... 
You know, I don't understand when they say that, oh, we're becoming more accepting of same-sex marriage and, and gay rights and stuff today when we have these kind of statistics that seem to say the opposite. Right. Well, people realize that uh, society has a right to promote the things that are good for society. And we know there's absolutely no doubt that a man and a woman marrying, setting themselves up to for the purpose of having a family uh, is beneficial to society and that the government ought to promote such things. Sure. So, so why would you detract from that? Why would you say, okay, we're going to promote this, but anybody else who's not doing this, we're going to promote that too. It's like the, um, you know, the kid who is valedictorian, right? Now all of a sudden you're going to say, well, any kid that showed up to high school is also a valedictorian. <laughs> Would that be just? Would that be moral? No, that's unjust because you're not treating what ought to be promoted and uh, lifted up uh, the way it should be. So, but of course, if you're one of those students that gets C's and D's in school, you would love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. Or you know, this is your participation ribbon. So that's uh, well, that's where we are in society today. Everybody yeah. gets first place trophies. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't want to leave anyone behind. <laughs> right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Well, Kirk, let's jump to our new topic, the reliability of Scripture. And I thought I would just read a blog that I got the other day. And this is from somebody that I've had the chance to meet. Let me see. Neil Mammon, there's his name, from noblindfaith.com. He wrote this back in December 2005, but somebody was just recently blogging about it. And what he does is he talks about how critics of the Bible talk about contradictions in the Bible. And they say, see, these contradictions prove that the story is false. So they might say that, well, how many women went to the tomb that first Easter morning? How many angels were there? Gee, we're not sure. One gospel says this number and another gospel says something different. So obviously these stories are made up. So what he did is he writes about a tragic accident that happened in Chicago uh, the night before. So he says, I was just reading the news last night about the tragic accident in Chicago. Now remember this happened back in uh, 05. One thing occurred to me. I don't think there really was a crash, because when I read the story from these five different sources, they all seemed to disagree with each other. <laughs> Just shows how the media twists things. So from the AP, Saturday, December 10th, 2005, it says a Southwest Airlines Boeing 737 rests in the middle of Central Avenue. Saturday, December 10th, 2005, in Chicago. The jetliner, trying to land in heavy snow, slid off the runway Thursday at Midway Airport, crashing through a boundary fence and slid out into the street, hitting one car and pinning another beneath it. A child in one of the vehicles was killed. Then we've got this one. A second one says, A snowy runway caused a Southwest Airlines Boeing 737 to skid off the runway in Chicago Thursday evening. Nobody on the plane was seriously injured, but a six-year-old boy was killed as the plane skid onto the intersection of 55th Street and Central Avenue and hit the vehicle he was traveling in. 
So Neil says, this one must be false as well because it only mentions one vehicle being hit and nothing about going through any fence. But we know (laughs) there were fences from the first report. Then AFP News said, Southwest Airlines jet sits on a roadway after it crashes through a security wall the evening before at Midway Airport in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Authorities launched an investigation after the jet skidded off a Chicago airport runway and into a street where it hit two cars and killed a child. So he says this also must be made up because it says the plane went through a security wall, not a boundary fence like the last one said it did. Don't you think that if a plane went through a brick wall, it would have exploded or at least caught on fire? (laughs) Then he quotes Reuters, a Southwest Airlines plane bound from Baltimore, Maryland, sits on a road along Chicago's Midway Airport December 9, 2005, after crashing through a safety barrier while trying to land during a snowstorm in Chicago on December 8, 2005. The story doesn't mention that someone was killed in this crash. Don't you think that this is kind of important? It talks about a safety barrier, not a wall. It also doesn't talk about any cars being hit. So were no cars hit? And then he quotes from AP Canadian Press. A Southwest Airlines Boeing 737 rests nose first at the intersection of West 55th Street and Central Avenue in Chicago Friday after it skidded off the runway at Midway Airport Thursday. This is a second AP source that doesn't agree even with the first source. It doesn't say anything about any cars. Forget about two of them. It doesn't mention a fence of any sort, nor does it mention anybody dying. You'd think that was important. Well, then the whole story about the airliner crashing must be false. It never happened. Exactly right. He says, so my conclusion is that the story is a lie and made up by the media to sell newspapers. (laughs) What do you think? And that's exactly what the critics of gospel contradictions will do. They will, uh, you know, say that just because there are differences in two, the way two eyewitnesses tell a story, then it, the story must be false. Mm-hmm. Well, Kirk, let's jump into <laughs> some of the evidences for the Bible. Then, if the critics are wrong, the contradictions don't add up to anything. How do we know still that the Bible is reliable? Specifically, let's look at how well has it been transmitted down through history. Now, this is important because Christianity claims that God actually spoke to the human race through the Bible. Mm -hmm. Very important. So, obviously, the question is then, how reliable is the Bible, right? I mean, how can we be sure that it was copied correctly over all those years, we know it was written over about a 1,500-year period. And this is something that is so amazing about the Bible. It was written over this long period. It, within it, it has all kinds of diversity, and yet it shows this amazing unity. And this itself is one of the evidences for the truth of the Bible. For instance, there were 40 different authors who wrote from all different walks of life, shepherds, soldiers, prophets, kings, fishermen, some were scholars, some were tax collectors, right? They lived on three different continents. They lived in all kinds of different ways of living, palaces, dungeons, out in the wilderness, in cities. They wrote in three different languages. 
They wrote all kinds of different styles of writing. They wrote stories. They wrote songs. They wrote letters, histories, biographies, poems. And those genres covered hundreds of different subjects. I don't think a lot of people... I don't think a lot of people think of that very often. They think of the Bible as one big book, but it's really not one book. It's a collection of books. That's right. It's 66 different books. Yep. Written over 1,500 years. Yep. And And the the real miraculous thing is the continuity of the theme. That's what I was going to say. All about God's redemption. That there's a unity of theme among all 66 of those books. That's pretty incredible in itself. Yeah, it is. So just one of the evidences in support of Scripture. Now, what does the Bible say about its transmission? Well, let's take a look at some of the verses, and then we'll talk about whether this is circular reasoning or not. In Matthew 5, 18, it says... For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Luke 16, 17, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. So, Scripture says that it has been transmitted, and it will be transmitted correctly down to us. Okay, is that circular reasoning? Well, it would be if we were using that as proof that the Bible did get translated down to us correctly. What we're using these verses to show is that the Bible is self-consistent. The Bible recognizes that it is revelation from God. It recognizes that it would therefore be important that it be transmitted correctly, and So it is self-consistent in identifying that it has been transmitted correctly. So um, now, obviously, that in itself isn't evidence. It'd be uh, like saying that, well, you know, do you know that Evidence for Faith is the most popular podcast in the entire universe? You know how I know? No. Because I asked you. Okay. And I said so. And you said so. (laughs) There you go. Right? That would be circular. Not good. Not a good way to to, uh, to do evidence. Right, and the reason I said so was because you told me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really circular. Yep. <laughs> so, all right. So let's look at the transmission of the Bible and uh, how it has come down to us. The beginning, in the beginning, it started out with God inspiring authors to write. So God gave authors information, inspired them through the Holy Spirit to write in their words his revelation, mm-hmm. okay? Now, the problem is that we don't have those originals. Right. None of them have survived. We don't have any originals. We have some very close copies, but nothing that is uh, actually got a signature at the bottom. And this is obvious, you know, for one thing, uh, paper and long-lasting papers a fairly new invention. The, they used to write on perishable materials. Sometimes they would try to write on things that lasted longer. Actually, what lasted really well is clay tablets. Unfortunately, clay tablets tend to be a bit bulky. Mm-hmm. But uh, leather and parchment, other things, were written on, and those just have not survived. And we have very, very few written documents from the ancient world that have survived. Right. The ink fades and the material 
deteriorates, people can't read it any longer, and they just throw it away. Right. So, you know, we've got, we're used to our Bibles that are so nicely printed and bound, acid-free paper, so it'll last a long time. Mm-hmm. And these are pr- printed by copy, you know, uh, printing presses, so they're all automated, so they're not going to make any mistakes. But before Gutenberg, before the printing press, everything had to be copied by hand. Right. So immediately you can think, well, gee, you know, I've copied things by hand before and I've made mistakes. So it's very easy to realize that errors could creep in. So that's the real issue is have errors creeped in to God's revelation. Well, you know, this is a real popular idea. A lot of people, you hear it from atheists and critics that say that, you know, the Bible has slowly changed over the, the centuries. Well, it's kind of instinctively, it's kind of natural to think that, but when you really study how the Bible was copied over the years and the incredible precision that they used to, to copy it, right. uh, it, it is very unlikely that now, there were and- errors. And, and what a, people will throw into, they'll say this, that it's changed over time, and then they'll say things like, look at all the translations. Well, uh, you know, that's just a confusion. This has nothing to do with translations. Right. Right? This is copying from one, staying in the same language and copying one copy after another. It doesn't have anything to do with translations. Right. But here's a quote from Bart Ehrman. He's widely quoted because he's a New Testament critic, a uh, top-notch scholar who disagrees with uh, Christianity, and he says, what good is it to say that the autographs, i.e. the originals, were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently in thousands of ways. Now, he says, this is really, he words it very oddly. Did you hear how he says, it's different from them evidently in thousands of ways? Uh-huh. Because he actually knows he's misleading his readers here. Um, I can't believe he said that. <laughs> yeah, this is from one of his books for lay people. But the thing about Bart Ehrman is he is an academic and he does write for the academy. So he writes in professional journals. And guess what? He doesn't say that when he writes to other professionals, other New Testament scholars. No, because he couldn't get away with it. Yeah, he realized, yeah, exactly, because everyone realizes that variant readings don't change any doctrinal points in the New Testament at all. So in his popular works, he tries to convince lay people that they do, but he knows that the majority of textual scholars disagree with that, including Bruce Metzger, one of the greatest uh, then-living textual experts whom Ehrman dedicated his book to. Yeah, so, I find that really just, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that he yeah, dedicated his book to a scholar who disagrees with him on the transmission of the Bible. Yeah, exactly. So I guess we've got a little bit of time to go over how uh, people think that the misinformation got put in. And you have to think about this game called the telephone game, right? Oh, yeah, I've heard of this. Yeah, you probably played it when you were a kid. I know I did. It's a fun game when you're a kid. So people think that as each copy is made from a prior copy, that errors grow until the final copy is completely different from the original 
Um, you know, just like in this game, you send a message and then you whisper into each kid whispers into the next kid's ear and then the message you get at the end is completely different. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, when a church received a letter from an apostle, what they did is made copies to share with other churches in the area. Mm-hmm. So, and those churches also made more copies. So what they did is they actually made multiple copies and spread them around until there were multiple, multiple copies from all sorts of different sources spread across the Mediterranean area. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that even though all of the early copies are lost, we can know what the original said by just comparing the existing copies. Why is that? You think, oh, well, look, by then there's got to be so many errors you wouldn't be able to tell. But here's the significant point, and people miss this all the time. Even when I've explained this several times, uh, they miss it. The thing is that when you make an error, it's not the same error that someone else made. Right. So the errors are different. So they don't build up. Okay, so maybe the copy that I have has an error, but other copies don't have that error in it. So uh, you can imagine it's like a grandma losing her pie recipe. She can retrieve it by just calling up her kids and getting copies, even if they have changed her recipe to their own liking she'll still know what the original recipe was because each child will not make the same changes. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. So the good news is that the more copies there are, actually that adds to the accuracy that we're able to determine what the original is. So the more there, more copies there are, uh, then the more accurately we can determine what the original was. Now, this is... Uh, by comparison, you can compare this to Islam, where in Islam, there was a period of time where the uh, caliphs, the imams, noticed that there were some variations in the Quran that were uh, starting to show up as they were copying. And so what they decided to do was pick one of the copies and eliminate all the others. So they destroyed all the different copies. Now, that just destroys your ability to know for certain whether they got the copies right. What if they picked the copies with the wrong errors? You'll yeah, never they, know now. How do they know they saved the accurate copy? Exactly. So this is a big problem uh, in the Islamic world. Uh, in fact, they've you know actually found some of the uh, manuscripts that have survived, and now they don't know whether those are actually the more accurate Qurans or not. But on Uh, the other hand, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament still in existence. Yep. In fact, in Greek, which was the original language of the New Testament, we have five over 5,600 now. And the count keeps going up because they keep finding more. Yep. Uh, So now some even into the first century. Uh, For the Old Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were more than 200, about uh, 220 uh, Old Testament scrolls that were found that were from a thousand years prior, and we'll get into that in a future show. Yeah, the thing I like about that, though, is they these old copies they found of the Old Testament, they compared it to the Old Testament we have today, and they were almost exactly alike, down exactly. to a, a couple and of words difference. you can difference. see those scrolls if you go to Philadelphia. They're going to be on display all summer. I saw that. 
So I'll definitely be going and yeah. seeing some of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Send your comments or questions with the call letters of the station that you listen to us on to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah, what?